If you've ever been curious about what a seminary schedule might be like or a daily agenda, you might be surprised to know that it looks largely like any other college or academic schedule. That there's a lot of things that you would expect. So there's the certain classes that we would take and the schedule for those throughout the week. We would have study periods. We'd have a lot of those different sessions that were very common. And even those usual daily elements, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, all of those things were scheduled in there as well. But then as a part of the seminary formation, there were things that were different, things that were added and things that you would not expect on an average college schedule. We had things such as morning prayer, evening prayer, night prayer, daily mass, a lot of different things that you may not expect on your average college schedule, and yet they were there. And these things were scheduled and very regimented so that they would be at fixed times throughout the day. And they weren't just for us to participate in ourselves, but rather they were for us to come together in the heart of the seminary in that chapel, and we would pray those things all in common. But it's rather odd, though, because during that time there were all these questions, because we knew in our heart of hearts that one day we were going to be praying by ourselves, that morning prayer, evening prayer, and night prayer were going to be done on our own. And that many times it was rather inconvenient that they were scheduled when they were. Because many times we needed to continue working. That there were other things that needed our attention. A lot of studies to be done. And even sometimes it was just aggravating praying in community. Because so many times there were guys that loved to pray fast. There were others that loved to pray slow. Sometimes it could be completely frustrating. What was the point of it all? The prophet Ezekiel this morning is speaking from his own experience of what the Lord is telling him. The Lord is reminding him of his own vocation in life, that he is a watchman that was appointed for the house of Israel, which means he's a sentinel. He's to be watching and waiting, that he's looking for something in particular, and that something that he is always waiting for is the word of the Lord. And so when the word of the Lord comes, so many times it could be words of encouragement. It could be words that others need to hear, and that it's boosting them up, and it's giving them this positive idea. But many times it's not. And in this particular case, the Lord is giving him a sort of warning and reminder, because he's telling him, you're not always going to be speaking words that others need to hear, but many times you're going to be speaking words to the wicked man, to the man who is doing wrong. And so what does he say? He doesn't say, just do it when you feel like it, but he warns him, there are consequences for your actions, and there are two potential courses of action that you can take. You can hear the words that I want to speak to the wicked man, and you can either choose to hold them to yourself or give them to the wicked man. But if you hold them to yourself, if you hear what I'm trying to say to the wicked man and you hold that within your heart of hearts, the wicked man will die. He will undergo the punishment that he is going to deserve but also you're going to be responsible for that because you didn't speak something that he needed to hear. And so, in fact, it's not just going to be him that gets punished. You're also going to be punished by extension. But then there's the less common option, that he could speak the words to the wicked man, as difficult as it might be, because that requires vulnerability. The wicked man may not respond. The wicked man may not take these words seriously or take heed of them. But nonetheless, that's not Ezekiel's place. Rather, Ezekiel's to hear these words that the Lord's wanting to speak. He's supposed to go and speak them to the man that needs corrected, and then he's going to wait. Maybe the man will respond. Maybe he won't. But nonetheless, the consequences won't be there. Because whether that person decides to follow the word of the Lord or not, Ezekiel won't be responsible for that. But rather, he's done his duty. He's done what a watchman is supposed to do. And he's told them what the Lord wishes to say. 
We continue on and we hear from St. Paul in his letter to the Romans, and he's speaking to owe others nothing except for love. And he starts to really relish this idea, and he starts to really break apart what it means. And we should be very familiar with this idea, because we know that whenever Jesus was encountered by those scholars of the law, and they asked him, what was the single greatest commandment? What was his response? To love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And St. Paul is actually picked up on this idea, and it's very interesting because he tells them that no matter the number of commandments or rules or regulations, no matter what the law requires, if you but love your neighbor, you will fulfill them all. And it's interesting, and it's very striking, because he was a very pious Jew, that they had those 613 different rules, regulations, and commandments, and they had to follow every single one of them. But if they just follow this one, it's enough. It might seem like an overgeneralization or something that seems that's very hasty to conclude, and yet it's very real. And so he continues on and he concludes with that simple remark, whether it's the commandments, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, you shall not commit adultery. All of those different commandments. If you but love your neighbor, you'll be following all of them. It's really unpacking what love is. It's not just this ethereal idea or something that's vague or abstract, but it's something very real, very powerful, and very particular that even though we can break it apart in so many different ways, if we but do that one thing, it's enough. We move on and we hear from the gospel and we hear Jesus, and he's speaking to these two particular realities. First, the need for correction, and then the second, the need for communal prayer. He starts off talking about this need for correction, and he's very aware of the situation and the humanity that we're all a part of, and he's speaking to that reality. He says, if someone sins against you, go in between you and them. Speak about it. Tell them about it between the two of you. And then what happens if they don't listen? Well, if they don't listen, then bring one or two others. That way, that credibility may be established between the, credi the testimony of two or three witnesses. Then if they don't listen, appeal to the church. Appeal to that authority and the one who is providing the rules for you. The one who should really give them a striking example and really make them think. But if they don't listen to that, treat them as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. One who's largely forsaken the gospel. And then leave them up to the Lord in his mercy and his own work. That's what the Lord is saying, that he's telling them not to forsake the idea that we need to correct or we might need to, to try to put someone back on the right path, but rather he's trying to get to that reality that we should do that even as difficult as it might be. So there might be a need for correction every once in a while. And then he continues on to this idea of prayer. And he's telling, if two or three of you agree on which you, what you are to pray for, it will be granted to you by my Heavenly Father. And what's more, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. This is the reality of the body of Christ. This is the strength in numbers. This is the reality of what happens when we gather in the name of Christ. Not just gather in a vague idea or a general way, but gather in the name of Jesus Christ that truly we can accomplish some great things, that we can pray for whatever we desire, we can ask for whatever we want, and indeed we can find Christ within ourselves if we are gathered in his name. Isn't that powerful? Even in the moments when we're alone or we're afraid or we might wonder where Christ is, if there's that gathering of two or three, just those simple people, then in fact we can trust that the Lord is there. But notice, this is all about community. 
This is all about looking outside of ourselves. This is all about looking past I, myself, and I. That it's, in fact, looking towards the community. It's looking outside of ourselves and looking towards our neighbor. Because this is something that is very countercultural. Look at our day and age. What does the world tell us to do? Do whatever you want. Do what you want, in fact. Do whatever makes you happy, whatever makes you fulfilled, and whatever helps you sleep at night. Do those things. Pursue the nothing else. Don't worry about anybody else. And it truly wants us to live that way. It wants us to live as a collective of individuals. Don't worry about the rights or the different things that others might have. Don't worry about their cares and concerns. Worry about your own. Pursue whatever makes you happy. And that's it. Don't worry about others' feelings. Don't worry about others' emotions. Just worry about yourself. And that is really not what the gospel ever says. That's not what the life of a Christian disciple is. Because if you look at that reality, the world does struggle with this. The world at large seems to think that we can just simply live in pursuit of whatever makes us happy. And maybe if, our, if we decide that helping our neighbor out makes us happy, then we might do that thing as well. But it's not enough, my brothers and sisters, because sometimes helping our brothers and sisters out isn't going to make us feel very good. Why do you think the Lord was speaking to Ezekiel the way that he was? It's not because Ezekiel was liking going out and criticizing others, or that he was trying to help them out, that it felt really good to him, but it was because it was painful, because he'd rather be a coward, he'd rather go and run away and hold on to the wor those words himself. And so the reality was that the Lord's encouraging him on because he was struggling, because helping his neighbor out didn't feel good at the time. The world would tell us not to worry about that, but rather what the gospel is telling us, what these readings are telling us, not to live for ourselves, not to be so insulated to the needs of our brothers and sisters that we can't see past our own hands, but to rather be looking out and to be aware. But all of this is founded and rooted in what we see in the second reading, in love of our neighbor. That's truly something that's difficult to live out. That if we're truly being selfless and not selfish, then we're going to start looking out for the collective good. Those around us, our neighbors, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and even those outside of the church, that if we're focused on loving them, then we can do some truly incredible things. But if we live in indifference, we can do some truly cruel things. Have you ever noticed the difference? Whenever we have a person-to-person -person conversation, it's very easy to see the humanity, and we so often want to treat them with love and respect and concern and care. But notice, the moment we send an email, the moment we send a text message, the moment we do something very impersonal, whether it's on social media or otherwise, it's very easy to criticize, it's very easy to be cruel, it's very easy to treat them as they're inhuman. And it's something that we do all the time. But what happens if we live in love? That's something that's personal. That's something that requires vulnerability. That's something that requires courage for us to do. That so often as this world is so cowardly to just simply live in view of our own wants, our own needs, our own desires, it's something that's so totally countercultural, and yet it's something Jesus wants us to do. To live in love of our neighbor. Not to treat them as somebody inhuman or something just across the internet, but rather to treat them as another person love your neighbor. But then we continue on, because we realize that at many times that there are people in our lives and there are people that have been placed on our journey that do need correction, that do need to be advised, to be admonished, to be encouraged to enter into a deeper relationship with their Lord and their God. 
But many times, my brothers and sisters, we can be like Ezekiel. We can feel as if it's just easier to simply hold on to that message and kind of sit back and let things play out as they will. But again, the Lord is very shrewd, and he's very powerfully particular in what he says, that we're responsible for our brothers and sisters. If we've been given the truth, if we've been given the message of conviction, if we've been given the sacraments and Jesus Christ himself, then how dare we not share that with the world? If we truly believe that we have everything that the world needs, how can we not speak about it? If we truly believe that we have the truth, if we are a people that have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and we know the right way to live, and we know the way to ultimate fulfillment, how in the world can we live in indifference to that? How can we not want to speak to others, especially those that are so far away from the gospel? Because whenever Jesus is speaking here, he doesn't say, just let them go, just let them, just go turn the other cheek and just be fine. But he says, if a person is sinning, we should have the courage to go forward and to say something, not to just simply let them live as they desire. But he tells them to help them out, to really practice charity. But we should remember in the midst of this that oftentimes we ourselves are the ones that are in need of correction. We can't just go out with guns a-blazing and trying to tell others that they're all doing wrong because we've got the truth. Brothers and sisters, I need correction at times. You need correction at times. That we're all in this together. And we recognize that need for charity and love whenever we approach one another and even try to correct one another. Because what's the goal of correction? It's trying to renew one in their relationship with Jesus Christ. Nothing else, nothing more. But then finally, the reality of what it is to be in community. Because as we live in community, it requires us to look outside ourselves. And even when we enter into prayer, it requires us to look towards the needs of our brothers and sisters. Whenever we gather here at Mass, whether it's on Sunday or during the week, we're not just focused on ourselves. At least we shouldn't be. We shouldn't just be focused on what I personally get out of this Mass. But we should be looking around. We should be wondering, what are the needs of those that are sitting in my pew? What are the needs of those that are sitting across from me in the other side? What are the needs of those that are outside of this church? What are the needs of those that need prayer today? Because the reality is that when we gather as a community of prayer, when we gather as the body of Christ, we're not just focused on ourselves, and we shouldn't be. We shouldn't ever attend Mass or the other sacraments as if it's some sort of candy dispenser, where it just gives me whatever I want and then I go about my day. But rather, it's about what we should also give into it as well about the way that we support one another, especially those that don't know how to pray, especially those that are in a weak moment, or those that are just indifferent, not paying attention right now, those that just don't care about their relationship with Jesus Christ. It's about those people as well that we should be reaching out and supporting them. Because perhaps that's why the seminary schedule was scheduled and structured the way it was. It was never about what was convenient to us. Because prayer is never about ourselves. The prayer should be about the community. It should be about the church. It should be about supporting one another. And that so often and in times, we need to realize that we need to re rediscover that for ourselves, that we aren't just a people of individuals, that even this church isn't just a collection of other individuals. Each person is important, but we're also supposed to be in community as the body of Christ. And whether we're living in love, whether we're practicing correction, whether we're trying to encourage others on, further on their relationship with Jesus Christ, or simply praying for one another, we shouldn't just be concerned with ourselves. We shouldn't be living selfishly. 
We should rather be living selflessly, looking for those ways that we can encourage one another, we can live in love, because if we do all of those things, we'll do exactly what Jesus desires, that we live as the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, may we never be just focused on our individual selves. May we never be a selfish people that simply look for what we can gain out of situations. But rather, rather let's be selfless people that treat one another with love and respect, that love our neighbor truly, and that even in the moments of correction or even those moments when we need to exercise prayer, that we're willing to do all these things for each and every one of our brothers and sisters in Christ. May we not look for out for our, just for ourselves, but may we be concerned for the entire body of Christ.